Scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 to 31. You know, in the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son, uh, the young man, if you're familiar with it, uh, the young man finds himself in uh, feeding pigs and wishing that he could feed himself with the, the pig slop that he was dishing out. And then he has uh, what is either a, a breakthrough moment of clarity or a temporary moment of remorse uh, as he looks at his situation and recalls uh, all that he had left behind. And the only thing that will let us know which of those it is, is how he acts after the aha moment. What comes after that will show whether it was a genuine moment of clarity or simply a moment of regret. And Jesus tells us, so he picked himself up and turned toward home. You know, weddings are great celebrations, honeymoons are even better celebrations, Uh, but what happens the day after? When the honeymoon is over, when Monday comes, uh, you still have to figure out who's going to take out the trash. Why doesn't the AC work? How do you pay these unexpected bills that come up? You know, your baby is born, perhaps for those couple of days that you're in the hospital, the nurses take your baby and keep her in another room for you all night, and you get just a glorious night of sleep. Your mother is there for a week, but eventually there is no nursery three doors down, and your mother goes home. What happens the day after? David had sinned. David had sinned in awful, irreversible ways. A woman was pregnant who was not his wife. Her husband was dead, who was a loyal and faithful subject. A friend has confronted David. David has acknowledged his sin. And as we saw last week, as Bob took us through Psalm 51, it reveals David's heart of repentance. So what next? What happens the day after? In one sense, your your grasp and understanding of your sin... And your understanding of God's forgiveness is not revealed so much in the moment of confrontation, in that moment with those first tears of regret or remorse, but really your understanding of your sin and your understanding of God's grace are revealed in what comes next. What, how do you move on? How do you live in the day after? How do you respond 
to the consequences of your choices? How do you view God now? How do you interact with God now? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel 12, beginning in the second part of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord. And worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her And lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, and said, I have fought against Rabbah, Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, And it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. 
And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So as we walk through this passage, uh, there's at least four things I want us to consider. Uh, How soon is too soon? You can trust God to act like God. Grace is still grace. And we are still called to fight the good fight. So how how soon is too soon? You've messed up big time. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's yet again. Your wife, your husband, your parent, your friend, someone has confronted you, perhaps the very person against whom you've sinned. They have confronted you. You've even seen that what you did was wrong and you've repented. How long do you wait in order to get back into a relationship with that person? You've sinned. They've been hurt. They've confronted you. You've repented. How long? What is the appropriate amount of time to stay away, to give space, to wait, to show kind of an outward appearance of ongoing remorse and sorrow. What's the right amount of time? How many hours, if you're a child confronted in your sin, young or old, how many hours do you have to wait before you come out of your bedroom and resume a relationship with your parents? How many times do you not ask for something you want so that after a right amount of time, you can now ask for something from your parent again. If you're a husband, how many chores will you do before you speak again to your wife? If you're a wife, how many favorite meals? This sounds so sexist. That's an awful expression, isn't it? I apologize for that. But how many many of your little things that you show... Prove your sorrow, your repentance. How many things do you do before you feel like it's an appropriate time to have a normal relationship again? The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. It's important to remember that even here, Even now, after David has taken this woman to be his wife, even here, the author is reminding you, this is not because God is a cruel and angry God. This is a consequence of David's sin. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. And it says, And David therefore sought 
the Lord on behalf of the child. What audacity that David would go to God on behalf of the child. This sickness, this this pain is all because of David's sin. How dare he go to the Lord? But David sought the Lord. Does David deserve to be heard by God right now? Of course he doesn't. But let me ask you this. Will he deserve to be heard by God in a week? No. Will he deserve to be heard by God in a month? No. How long do we wait to confess? And then how long do we wait to return to the Lord? How long will I wait to cry out to God? And the length of time that I wait to cry out to God is inversely related to how well I understand God's grace and forgiveness. God told David that the child would die. And yet David felt the freedom and confidence. He felt the faith to cry out to God on behalf of this child. To the only one who had any power to turn away the result of his sin. Why? Because he knew who God was. He knew that Adam and Eve did not die on that day. And yes, Cain was cast out of the presence of all of God's people. And he knew that even while God's wrath was poured out on the entire earth, he knew that naked, drunk, passed out Noah did not die on the day that he deserved to die. He knew that that lying, conniving Abraham did not die when he deserved to die. He knew that the grasping, deceitful Jacob did not die on that day. In short, he trusted God to act like God. Doesn't mean that David was presumptuous. It doesn't mean that God owed David mercy. It doesn't even mean that David had any sense that God owed him mercy. David fasted, he wept, he begged, he poured out his heart to God day and night for seven days. His servants could not even convince him to get up off the floor to eat. Why? Because, as David explains it later, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me whether the Lord will show grace to me and the child will live. And so he fasted and he wept, not to manipulate God, but because that's what our sin ought to produce in us, a weeping. We ought to see the results of our sins and weep over them. This is the effect of my sin, not God's anger, my sin. David knows that God is holy. 
But David knows that God is merciful. These are not in conflict. David knows that as, da- as Nathan pointed out, he was blind to both God's grace and God's holiness when he sinned. His response is to seek to be controlled by both of those again, by God's holiness and God's grace. He weeps, he fasts, he prays. And when the answer comes, he worships. In the eyes of the servants and elders around him, perhaps in our eyes, he does the whole thing backwards. You know, for seven days, shouldn't he have just done all he could to enjoy those seven days, to, to just capture those seven days? And yet in those seven days, he, he weeps, he mourns, he begs, he isolates himself, he won't eat. He's just, it's just him and God before the child dies. And then after the child dies, when everyone expects the mourning to come, everyone expects the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and the cries of how long and why and where were you? David goes home, as expected, and he takes a bath, and he puts on deodorant, and a clean pair of clothes, and asks for something to eat. And he worships the Lord. He goes to the house of the Lord, worships God, and comes home and asks what's for dinner. See, if you only worship God when he's doing what you want, when he's answering your prayers according to how you think they ought to be answered, when he's giving you what you ask for, it's very possible it's not God you're worshiping. God is simply a servant to you. He is beholden to you. When we worship God, when we don't understand, when he's not answering the prayers we ask, We recognize he is holy and he is merciful and I don't understand his answers. Can I still worship God? David trusted God to act like God because David knew that grace is still grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is not something that we deserve. It is not something we can earn. It is grace. Second Chronicles, in speaking of this time in David's life, actually tells us, or at least indicates, that Solomon may be the fourth son of Bathsheba, at least in the order that he's mentioned when, when the children of Bathsheba and David's union are mentioned. Here, Solomon is listed as just the one who's focused on, and so we don't need to see this as necessarily a week-by-week, day-by-day chronological explanation, but it's simply giving an overview of things. But the birth of Solomon, God's heart towards Solomon is a reminder that grace is grace, and that God is ever gracious. Psalm 103, 
Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Nathan had said to David, God has put away your sin. Isn't it interesting in verse 15, we're told the child that Uriah's wife bore to David died. In verse 24, we're told David comforted his wife Bathsheba and she bore him a son. God's grace is amazing. He does not hold our sins over us. When God says, I have taken your sin away from you, he means, I have taken your sin away from you. He doesn't hold, uh, he doesn't, uh, I lost my word. Huh? Grudges, that's good. Uh, He He doesn't sit there and remember. He doesn't keep a list. Psalm 32 says, I I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The very guiltiness of my sin you forgave. You don't Hold these things over me. The Lord is merciful. Psalm 103 again. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't always chide. He doesn't keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God isn't gracious to us because we deserve it. He is gracious to us because we need it and he knows. He knows that we are dust. Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, and as Noah comes and he offers a burnt offering to the Lord, we're told the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Because of this offering? No. He says, I know the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's not because man had learned his lesson, he was never going to sin again now. But God committed that he would never again curse the ground because of man's sin. The end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the body of death he's speaking of is his own internal struggle with ongoing sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Even while with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And he goes on and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Paul knows he's going to do better and try harder? No, because God has committed through Christ that he has taken away our sin. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did David deserve for Solomon to be born? Of course not. Did David deserve for God to remain faithful to his word even after David had been so unfaithful? No, he did not deserve that. It was all grace. Grace is grace. It is not earned, not earned by David, not earned by you or me. Let me ask you just a quick application question. Do the sinners in your life know and feel the grace of God from you? David knew that it is never too soon to cry out to God for deliverance or mercy because God is still God and grace is still grace. Do the people who sin against you or sin in your presence or sin, do sinners know that grace from God from how you interact with them? I mean, even as we ask the question, you know, how long is too, how soon is too soon for me to approach uh, the person I've sinned against? Do you, do you have, do you give off the feel of grace is grace? It's unearned. Or do you give off the feel of, I mean, I hear you. Yeah, you look sorry. I just feel like you're not sorry enough. I'm going to make sure that your sorry really reaches the level of sorry. I mean, sometimes it's hard to get back into relationship because of our own sense of shame and guilt and sorrow over our sin. But let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to get back into relationship because we've put up walls and we've said, no, sir, not yet. Solomon is beloved by God. And so David, because of God's grace, because God is still God, David could fight the good fight. Doesn't this passage end strangely? I mean, what what is with the Ammonites coming back into this picture? Why... Why do we hear about the end of the Ammonite war here? Well, in one sense, it's because it started with the Ammonite war. If you remember all the way back, even to chapter 10, this all started with the death of a king and the folly of a son And then strangely ends with the folly of a king and the death of a son? Or, you might say, it starts with the death of a king and the folly of a son and ends with the folly of a king and yet the birth of a son. You know, a couple of things we can take away from this kind of inclusio style of writing and recording this for us. Why is this story of David's tragic sin and his restoration stuck in the middle of the Ammonite War? There might be a couple of reasons. 
One, it could be a reminder for the readers, you and me and all of the readers of Scripture, that the main fight, the main battle, the main war, the enemy that you face mostly is in here. In the midst of the Ammonite War, was the Ammonite War David's biggest issue? Nope. It was his heart. David thought that his main struggle was against the enemies out there, against the Ammonites. Turns out his struggle was with his own sin and temptation. Those trials, those struggles, those things that are going on outside of you, not the issue. The trials, the struggles, the things that are going on inside of you, that is the issue. You know, we've used this example before. It's not what's outside of you, it's what's inside of you. As my pastor used to put it, why is it that toothpaste comes out when you squeeze the toothpaste tube? Because that's what was inside. It wasn't the pressure that produced the toothpaste. It was the pressure that revealed the toothpaste. Your problem isn't the pressures that are going on around you. Your problem is that when those pressures squeeze... Very gross and disgusting toothpaste comes out. And that is just because that's what's inside of you. This can be both encouraging and discouraging. It's discouraging because when you look within, maybe you don't like what you see. Your choices, your decisions. Things you've decided to do, things you've decided not to do. The struggles you have, the weakness you have, the trials you face. Is this truly who I am? Is this what defines me? In one sense, Christ says, yes, in the past tense. Yes, but they don't need to. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. This great passage in Colossians 1, opening up Colossians 1.27, says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. Not you figuring it out. Not you and your bootstraps. Not you and your commitments and your New Year's resolutions. Christ in you is your hope of glory. That is who is in you. That's what's in you. Now, when you're squeezed, yes, some of that ugly toothpaste comes out. But isn't it wonderful that sometimes Christ comes out? That is God's commitment to you. I will send the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit, another comforter, and he will guide you in the way that you should go. So it could be just the reminder that the author wants us to see, listen, those outside wars, not your biggest problem. What, how are you dealing with the war inside But second, it could be that the author is pointing out 
that life goes on. There's always a day after. And what are you going to do? Well, you're going to be faithful. You're going to do what God had told you to do the first time that you didn't. It turns out, even on the day after, you're still God's child. You're still called to obedience and faithfulness. And he still loves you. You are his beloved of the Lord. And how beautiful that the prodigal son story doesn't tell us that that the prodigal son got up, took a bath, put on some deodorant, changed his clothes, and then went home to his father. In the prodigal son, we're told, he shows up in all his filth, and the father washes him. The father embraces him. The father clothes him. This My son was lost and he's found. He was dead. And now he's alive. Praise God who forgives your sin, who heals your diseases, who washes you and invites you to sit down and eat at this table where he says, I will feed you. I will nourish you with the strength of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful to you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Help us to worship you when we can't see you. Help us to worship you when your answers are no. Remind us that we are saved by grace alone. Help us to trust you and to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.